His wife's sister had also offered, but John decided that would just be too complicated. When I asked Jessie, a mother of three small children and a professional dancer, why she would take this huge risk, she was taken aback. Well, you know John. Everyone loves him. Why wouldn't I give him my kidney? Then a longtime friend, Kate, walked up to John at a gallery opening and blurted out that she wanted to help. She told me later that as soon as she offered her kidney, she felt scared. She then called the transplant nurse to ask what would be the worst thing that could happen if she went ahead. The nurse told her that one person in 3,000 dies during the operation, and that the surgeon might accidentally nick her spleen. Then I thought, I'm not going to die. That's just not going to happen to me. Still, the testing was grueling, and it didn't stop even after they found that her blood type and tissues were compatible with John's. During that year, I went back more than five times. I gave sixteen vials of blood. They took various cells to test my compatibility. Then they tested my health. They did ultrasounds and CAT scans. I had a mammogram, which found a cyst, so they did a biopsy. Then I did a twenty-four-hour urine test, twice. She also underwent a long interview, during which the transplant team examined her motives. I could tell they were suspicious because I wasn't family. As powerful anti-rejection drugs had been available for a decade, it was now less important for the donor and recipient to be related. Still, medical professionals needed to know, why on earth would someone volunteer to go through this? It turned out that Kate was ready for the surgery before John was so in the end, the timing didn't work out. She couldn't be John's donor. The kidney John ultimately received was a gift from his longtime friend Fred, with whom he had listened to Hendrix and Zappa as a teenager, two fifteen-year-olds trying out guitar riffs in Fred's basement. Thirty years later, they saw each other perhaps once or twice a year. Still, when John needed a kidney, Fred came forward. The probability that a person not biologically related to you will offer you a kidney is very small, about three in a thousand. The chances of two people doing so are infinitesimal. Then there is John, who received four serious offers. By virtue of his strong relationships groomed over decades, John beat the odds and the disease that had killed his father. John's story is an unusually concrete example of how strong social bonds can prolong our lives. In this book, I'll show how those of us who invest in meaningful personal relationships with lots of real social contact are more robust and have better physiological defenses than those who are solitary or who engage with the world largely online. Digital networks and screen media have the power to make the world seem much smaller, but when it comes to certain life-changing transformations, they're no match for face-to-face. Face-to-face interaction does not just spur selfless acts like those of John's friends. It also affects how well we learn to read, how quickly we fight off infection, and ultimately, how long we live. So how, exactly, does that happen? Less than 0.01% of the Western world's population needs a new kidney. But every one of us needs a tight knot of friends and family in our corner, and not just when the chips are down. 
If we don't interact regularly with people face to face, the odds are we won't live as long, remember information as well, or be as happy as we could have been. What do I mean by regularly? When my son was small and went to his first violin lesson, he asked his music teacher, an impish man from Belgrade, if the rumor was true. Did he really have to practice every day? Crouching down to Eric's level and putting a slender hand to his chin, Dragan considered the question. Not every day, just every day you eat. Social contact is like that. It's a biological drive. So I learned after spending three years delving into a fairly new field, social neuroscience. The field didn't exist when I trained as a psychologist, back when brain scans were as rare and expensive as private jets. But by the early 1990s, brain...